Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Diabetes, it doesn't just happen to adults. This is actually a condition that we see increasingly among our keiki, among our children as well. And so today we're going to talk with Dr. Melanie Shim. She is a pediatric endocrinologist at Kaiser Permanente, and she spearheaded a comprehensive multidisciplinary group that helps to address all of the various issues that occur around the diagnosis and management of diabetes in our children. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Kathy. Now tell me a little bit about the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes in children. I deal with adults all day long, and so I kind of have the adult world taken care of. But the pediatric world, when you're below the age of 18 or 21 for some, it's a totally different world. Right. So I think that's an important distinction to make. Um, Most people know that there's type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And so type 1... uh, used to be thought of as a childhood disease and type 2 an adult and those lines are crossing so we're seeing bo- we're seeing a lot more type 2 in kids type 1 diabetes usually is diagnosed in childhood it is a disorder um in which the pancreas gets destroyed by uh autoimmune processes and we don't really know what the cause is uh, eventually, the pancreas makes no insulin. So these kids are called insulin-dependent diabetics, and they require insulin from the get-go. And type 2 diabetes is a state of insulin resistance, which kind of occurs as you get older and uh, is associated with uh, weight gain. Um, and also, it eventually leads to... Um, a deficiency of insulin as well. And so sometimes you end up on insulin treatment as well, but you can start on some oral treatments. Now we're seeing um, both types in children. So it's interesting. I can see where the lines are blurred because some type 2 diabetics are on insulin Mm -hmm. and all type 1 diabetics are on insulin. And so we're seeing this sort of spectrum or continuum of the differences in the different types of diabetes. And again, as you, as, as we know, we're not really sure what, what turns on this switch to make somebody who was previously doing okay, become a type one diabetic. But if you were to, and it usually gets diagnosed in childhood, if you were to be a parent, what symptoms would your child have that would make you think, oh no, they've got type one diabetes? Right. So because in diabetes, your sugar levels are high, um, you that leads to extra urination. So somebody will have to go to the bathroom more. If you're waking up in the middle of the night when you hadn't previously to go to the bathroom, or if you start wetting your bed when you weren't previously a bedwetter, or ask for water in the middle of the night. Those are very early signs. And if it goes on long enough, uh, you'll lose weight as well that that you're not trying to lose. So sometimes you can see those symptoms. But still, a third of, of children are diagnosed in a very severe state. And I think that's because they people aren't aware of the symptoms and they don't realize somebody's sick. Kids can't articulate necessarily that they are thirsty, and they may just think it's a hot day, you know. So 
Sometimes it can it get gets missed. missed. Okay. Sure. Now, is sugar testing, I guess, and you may have the pediatric experience, is it part of the routine standard testing that kids do on an annual physical basis or only for specific age groups? No, it's not because... Um, the numbers are pretty small of the people who have it. Right. Type 1. With type 1, um, about 1 in 550 kids has type 1 diabetes. And so, and also, as a screening tool, it's not a very effective tool because really it's going to happen fairly suddenly and it's hard to catch a high blood sugar and the symptoms will appear. So you could have a normal blood sugar at your doctor's visit and then a week later have a high blood sugar. So it's not a very good screening tool that way. In type 2 diabetes, it's a little bit different. Um, because that tends to sort of evolve over a long time. There are risk factors. Um, right now what we do is for anyone over the age of 10 with a body mass index greater than the 85th percentile, we will screen um, for diabetes in that group. And we'll catch a lot of kids that are borderline diabetic or what we call pre-diabetic. And then sometimes uh, that's a great place to start some life to lifestyle uh, advice. So it sounds similar to what we see in adults. I mean, I usually am not the, in fact, I don't think I've ever been the diagnoser of new onset type 1 diabetes. I've certainly diagnosed people with type 2 that become insulin dependent. But, you know, I'll see people over the age of 21 or so. And a lot of my patients are, are quite a bit older than that. So, so I'll see a lot of the type 2s. The risk factors for type 2 diabetes sound very similar, and it's part of what we've been looking at nationwide. You look at weight, you look at family history, you look at activity level, you look at symptoms. Are they craving sweets, having episodes where there's frequent urination, like you mentioned, excessive thirst, abnormal, unusual weight loss, which you would think, hey, that's a great idea. If I'm overweight and I get diabetes and I lose weight, that's great. It could mean that your sugars are so high there's a problem. Blurred vision, a couple of other things that might manifest and be signs or symptoms of diabetes. But Often in the adult world, based on risk factors, there is some element of screening. Either people do it as part of a workplace wellness, or they come in for a physical and we wind up checking sugars. And so often as an adult, you will see this evolution of the higher sugars. With a kid, we are seeing kids these days have greater issues with weight gain or inactivity or not doing enough physical activity. So if we think of those risk factors for the pre-diabetic or the very borderline kids who are about to head into that diabetes range, what are some of the interventions that parents could do now? Because rather than wait until they get diabetes, which may happen at a young age, what are some things parents could do? If you're there, if you're home today and you look at your kids and go, okay, I'm really worried. Diabetes runs in our family. Kids don't seem to be active outdoors. Parental tips that can help. Well, and I did, so going back to the risk factors, I did want to mention that um, um, the more we understand about risk factors, uh, I mean, the list is getting longer. So say you're a child and you are born to um, a mother who had gestational diabetes in pregnancy, that puts you at higher risk. Again, family history, uh, other people in your family with 
type 2 diabetes, minority race, which is, you know, in our diverse population, it's everyone. <laughs> um, and so uh, things that can be done, I mean, then we start looking at diet and exercise very closely. We try to, if somebody is overweight or obese, we try to encourage a 7% weight loss. Um, um, definitely want to decrease some of the simple sugars out of your diet, like soda and juice, and increase fiber in your diet. And then another big thing, we really recommend daily exercise or the equivalent of about 60 minutes of like vigorous exercise at least three times a week. So there's a lot of things that people can get started doing, even just to to make sure that they're following general good guidelines for health. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. I'm here with Dr. Melanie Shim. She is a pediatric endocrinologist at Kaiser Permanente. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what are the unique treatment issues to deal with with the pediatric population in dealing and managing diabetes. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We're talking diabetes with pediatric endocrinologist Dr. Melanie Shim. She's at Kaiser Permanente, and she's established this comprehensive multidisciplinary group that really makes it easier for parents to get comprehensive education. So you go, you get seen by the endocrinologist, you have an opportunity to meet with some other folks, diabetes educators, nutritionists. The idea of this comprehensive clinic was to make it easier so you don't have to go to seven different visits, but also to bring a lot of services in one place. So we just talked about lifestyle and how you need to exercise 60 minutes of vigorous exercise three times a week, how you have to eliminate some of the things in the household that a lot of people think of that kids would enjoy, juices and sodas and things. Who are the other elements or components of this multidisciplinary group? Right. So this group was something that was very important to me. So I'm very proud that we were able to to create it. Um, it is a group of, of specialists, including a CDE, which is a certified uh, diabetes educator who happens in our group to be an RN, um, a, d- a dietitian who specializes in diabetes for the, for the medical nutrition therapy, um, somebody from behavioral health to give the patient psychosocial support. And then we have our, our, our nurse who is able to help us with all the technology that's involved in downloading blood sugars for our diabetics. Um, and then the doctor, me. <laughs> and so all of you work together and you see patients and maybe you would see somebody and then you would know which of these other services they need. And it could all be done in one place at one time. Right. It's really convenient for the patient instead of having to go to multiple specialties. Plus, it's a place where we can check off all the boxes. Um, They have their annual foot screen. We can take care of all their school forms. We make sure their vaccinations are up to date. They can have all their labs done at one time, address any kind of dietary issues. And then at the end, we do a special group session where uh, the families can get together. Usually there's three or four families 
in fact, we're just having one today, um, that get together and they can meet other families that are dealing with diabetes, make connections, and sometimes they exchange information. So, Well, and I think a lot of the common things that people do may not be something they learn from their doctor. I mean, we learn a lot from the people that we see as patients because they might have developed a unique trick that works for them for a variety of different medical conditions. And then you can share that with someone else. So that empowerment of the group experience, I think, really says a lot to try and get folks to figure out how to work on the common sense daily things that right. might be a challenge that I wouldn't think about as an initial sort of a problem, but someone would really worry about these things. And maybe they have a new connection and a family that they can work with to help them out. So in this sort of situation, one of the things that you mentioned is that for kids who have diabetes, the only oral approved medication is metformin. They're all otherwise on insulin. So when we talk about the intensity of doing teaching and training, it's because, you know, maybe adults take diabetes pills and they should be checking their sugar in the morning, but it's not like they're using an injection so they don't have to be as obsessive about doing that every day and adjusting insulin doses. But with kids, and it's an entirely different scenario. Right. Well, for type 1 diabetes, all children have to be on insulin because they... That's and adults, a, type right, 1. That's, exactly. Same you thing. Do that, so right? they, they, they have a very intensive regimen. But for type 2 patients, they can uh, start on metformin, which is an oral medication, but uh, many, many times that's just not enough. And because they... The FDA has not approved the other medications for use in children. We are left with insulin. So what we have is a lot of children with type 2 diabetes taking shots, up to anywhere from one to four shots a day and checking your blood sugar four to five times a day. And that's a lot for any child, for any person. Now, luckily, technology has been able to help us out with that. There's new devices that continuous glucose monitor. There's insulin pumps. How do these things help in the management of diabetes? So in the last five years, it's really exploded. Um, insulin pumps have gotten smaller. Basically, they're a reservoir of insulin that you wear on your body, and it provides, like, continuous infusion of insulin, um, and it kind of simulates the pancreas better. And so now somebody doesn't have to inject themselves with a shot because it's going in through a little catheter under the skin, and that's been amazing for so many patients, and, and it's allowed them freedom. Um more recently, the continuous glucose monitor is a device that can check somebody's blood sugar in real time. And it's another thing worn, a little electrode worn under the skin that can tell you what your blood sugar is at any given time. And because it works through Bluetooth technology, you can... You can um, have it beamed to your phone. It can go to your doctor's office. Parents can see it, and and it makes management a lot easier. Well, and that's a real important aspect that parents can see, okay, my kid's in school. I can see what their sugar is right. because I want to make sure that they're healthy and they're able to learn. And it also really empowers kids themselves if they're technologically savvy enough and 
They're probably savvier than I am with technology entirely <laughs> at any age. But that way, there there's actually ways that you can get the sugar readings without having to do the finger stick, without that little prick that you have to do. So you calibrate the device, and then you don't have to worry. So you can get real-time sugar readings. Now, do those help with treatment decisions and help you to gauge what basal rate of insulin you need in the pump or what other types of insulin doses that might be needed throughout the day? Oh, definitely. Because while you're sleeping, you ordinarily don't get up and prick your finger to check a blood sugar. So you have all this data about what's happening while you're sleeping. So sometimes you can avoid really bad lows. The pump, uh, the uh, glucose sensor has alarms that you can set that will alert you if you're going low and alert you if you're going high. And uh, the newest ones don't even require calibration. You don't even have to check your finger at all anymore. So it's been it's been revolutionary. The other thing is that it changes your behavior a little bit over time. Being able to see your blood sugar in real time um, sometimes allows you to change your behavior. Maybe maybe you won't eat. Maybe you d- see your blood sugar is high and you decide, okay, I'm going to skip the dessert or I'm going to go for a run. Or if it's going low, you might eat a little more. I mean, there's there's so many ways it changes things. That immediacy of getting the information is this direct feedback. You know, I know that I know someone who has used the continuous glucose monitor sort of on a trial basis and said, all of a sudden, I saw how much rice had an impact on my sugar and I didn't want it anymore. (laughs) And I saw that exercise helped stabilize my sugar. And it really helped me quite a bit so that I wanted to exercise more. I wanted to do more activity. And it was that immediacy, that, that information, that direct feedback that really helped them to visualize what we may know medically. We know that this is going to have an impact, but when you see it for yourself, it makes a huge difference. Right, and the devices are getting smaller and smaller. I mean, kids and teenagers, they don't like wearing anything on their body, and they're very aware of that. And so over the last three years, the device itself you really can't see it'll tuck underneath your shirt or you know in the pocket of your jeans it's very discreet we could be wearing them right now no one would notice all right i'm dr kathleen kozak and i'm here in the studio with dr melanie shim she's a pediatric endocrinologist at kaiser permanente and when we come back here on the body show we're going to talk some more about where technology might go next and how this transition for kids going through puberty and going through all these other changes, what happens once they become an adult and how do we continue to manage their diabetes? We'll be right back after this quick break. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Shamanad University, Inter-Island Solar Supply, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, learning a lot from my pediatric colleague, Dr. Melanie Shim, and you've got endocrinology expertise, and you help a lot of folks at Kaiser Permanente deal with the management of diabetes, both type 1 and type 2. As kids get diagnosed, all the different challenges of what they need to learn and do can be overwhelming, and it sounds like you've really brought this multidisciplinary team together to help address these needs and make sure it all takes place in one place at the same time, which is a fantastic way to bring people together and provide that educational support and the group support and the families together that can learn from one another. 
Now, right before the break, we were talking about the continuous glucose monitors. Why do sugars go low in the middle of the night? I know it's something that we hear about. I know people realize that it can happen, particularly for those people on injections. But you're not eating, so why does it go low? Well, that's that's another uh, well, that's a good question. But because you're not eating, you tend to go low. So during the day, you're eating or snacking all day long, and that will keep your blood sugars up. Well, definitely during meals. Um, in in while you're sleeping, if you don't have diabetes, normally your blood sugar won't go low. But if you the insulin is not a perfect insulin. And so in the past, when we used to use uh, human insulin or a biosynthetic human insulin, there was a big peak that ended up being in the middle of the night and you would go low. And so if you didn't, didn't make sure that you ate a nice big meal right before going to bed, you have a chance of going low. Nowadays, the insulin's a lot smoother and... Um, you, you you may actually go high in the night, which is something that can happen. And so either one of those variations, the super high or the super low, puts stress on the body. You want to kind of keep it at a steady rate? Right. You would like, you'd like your blood sugar basically to stay uh, between 70 and 140 if you can. <laughs> and that's what your body and your pancreas could do. If you didn't have, have diabetes. diabetes. Right, right. So that's sort of your, your range where you want to keep it. Now, the continuous glucose monitors, I think, really have transformed the practice and the treatment of diabetes. In addition to some of the newer insulins that don't have that peak and trough, what else is up and coming? You've mentioned in the last five years, we've seen some dramatic improvements. In the world of diabetes, what's coming down the pike? Do you know of anything? I know I hear in the adult world, there's the issue of artificial pancreas and doing different types of beta cell implants in various parts of the body, try and mimic the pancreas function. But what's happening in the pediatric world? Right. So there's lots of research going on. So there's research uh, looking at prevention. Um, there are ways where we can predict whether somebody uh, is likely to develop type 1 diabetes. And um, there are big trials going on right now seeing if if intervention can stop uh, the development of diabetes. That's one thing. Um, um, They're trying to improve beta cell transplants. Uh, pancreas transplants are uh, not perfect right now. So ways of maybe encapsulating uh, pancreatic cells so that they are not subject to the, um, the destructive immune processes <laughs> that are going on in the first place. That's one thing. Um, and also trying to uh, grow uh, um, healthy pancreas cells, that's happening. The artificial pancreas, that idea is evolving. Right now, uh, the artificial pancreas looks like a insulin pump, an insulin pump, and a glucose monitor that can talk to each other. And we kind of so have we that have technology that, now. Right. So by wearing two devices, one um, that is administering insulin and one that's checking your blood sugar, they talk together and it's almost a closed loop system, um, but not completely. A closed loop system, a complete closed loop system would, you know, require, would... Uh, it would be it, perfect all the time. You wouldn't have any intervention. Right. You, you wouldn't would have need. to do anything. You wouldn't have to input what you're eating. The sensor would be able to um, release the insulin without checking first with the patient. So there's movement in the future. There is. There, there is. 
And it sounds like it starts from doing further research to figure out why this whole metabolic process takes place, particularly for the type 1, but also the type 2, interventions to avoid it from progressing, right? and then treatment opportunities. Now, a few years ago, there was a big flurry about insulin that you could get, which didn't have to be injected. So for a while, people were looking at inhaled insulin, and that was potentially problematic because of people with lung conditions. Are we ever going to move beyond the infusion or the injection of insulin from some sort of pump source? Do you think we'll ever find some other way to deliver it, never in a pill? Well, there was so much excitement, you're right, about the nasal insulin, as well as the inhaled insulin, and then an oral insulin, but none has seemed to work. We need very, very precise doses for type 1 diabetes. And so um, with type 2 diabetes, some of those methods were okay, but uh, nothing is as good as uh, the injectable insulin right now. So that's where we're headed. Now... What can families do if there's someone in the family who has diabetes, if there's a sibling or if there is somebody who has this condition, can families, what can they do to support one another? What can parents do to support kids? What can siblings do? Because I think life with a chronic illness is entirely different as you're growing up than life as a healthy kid that never has anything to worry about. Right. Chronic illness in ch- in children, especially diabetes, because it requires uh, all the multiple blood sugar testing and, and insulin shots. It really involves the entire family. Um, and it can cause a lot of stress in the family and in the siblings, w- with, with the siblings. And that's something that we do address on a regular, on a regular basis. Um, Siblings can try to be supportive and try to understand, especially when there's very young patients that aren't able to articulate when they feel low or when they feel high, um, can help by uh, trying to understand those cues from the young children. And then as you enter into the teenage years, um, that's such a time of experimentation, the family should be there to really kind of support uh, the patient Especially talking about things like safe sex and drugs early on, um, there's really a balance that they need to try to find. You mentioned alcohol, particularly, you know, it can change your sugar values. It can make you more likely to have issues with your sugars. Right. So alcohol, and a lot of people don't realize it, but can drop your blood sugar very low. And so for a diabetic... That's course, a problem. That's a problem when there's already insulin on board. And then later on, the later effect is to cause a high blood sugar. And so um, there can be problems on both ends. Plus, that leads to risky behavior and um, other things that can exacerbate the, the diabetes uh, complications. Now, there's something exciting that's happening in November that you've been working on that I want to take time to mention, and that's going to be a camp that's going to be up at Camp Erdman for families who have diabetes. What's the idea there? Yes, so we're very excited about that. Um, This is a pilot. Uh, We are going to start with about 40 children, um, 
again, there's probably, and I don't know if I mentioned this before, about 600 uh, children in the state of Hawaii with type 1 diabetes. This is a camp for type 1 diabetes. We may ex- expand later. But in November of this year, we're trying to pull together 40 uh, type 1 um, diabetic children for camp. And there's going to be a little bit of a ki- education, but it's really a time for kids just to feel like kids, for them to not have to worry about their diabetes because we'll be taking care of that, and for them to make connections and feel empowered and um, just be a kid. <laughs> and people can get information on the yes, Hawaii this, chapter of the ADA's website? Right. So this is a camp that is um, sponsored by the ADA, and it will be on their website, and people can register. All right. Well, I absolutely want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today here on The Body Show. It really has been enlightening. How do you manage diabetes for kids, which is quite different than how you might manage it as an adult? Lots of great information, and I want to get that multidisciplinary group to all come together in my office in one afternoon and get it all done. All right. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us through the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk more about health topics right here on The Body Show. We'll see you then. Woo!